studying First Peter together on Sunday morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And if you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And then you can not only hear the Word of God, but read it as well. And then if you don't own a Bible, absolutely feel free to receive that as a gift and take that home and and uh, make it a great blessing into your life. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, that is, only by God's grace, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear who rejects that grace? And therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Let's pray together now. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. Thank you for the pricelessness of this word from your throne. Thank you that it's going to outlive the heavens and the earth, and the truth of it will outlive our lives and be proven true in our lives, every single one of our lives. And now as we turn to it, to explore it, Lord, in fellowship with you, in our relationship with you, We pray that you would take your truths that are found here, that you lift them off of the printed page and speak them into an eternal place in each one of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In these verses, the Apostle Peter is kind of now summarizing what he's been speaking in the first four chapters of First Peter. He's really kind of bringing the main theme of, of the book uh, to a conclusion. He has other things that he wants to say in chapter 5 before he formally concludes the letter. But here in these verses that we're reading are kind of a recap of what he has been teaching, kind of a summary. And oftentimes teachers do that kind of thing if they're not afraid of repetition. And Peter certainly wasn't afraid of repetition. We remember that First Peter was written to Christians who were in the midst of great, great difficulty, great, great suffering. It was written to Christians who at a time were not only facing persecution for their faith, on a personal level, as we do so often, that is, uh, as it relates to our family or as it relates to our friends, 
but they were also facing a government-sanctioned, a empire-sized opposition to them and to their faith in God in the form of the Roman government. And this persecution took place during the time of a Roman Caesar by the name of Nero. And Caesar Nero had a passion for building, a passion for architecture. And we looked at the the capital city of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome, he looked at that city and the condition that it was in in terms of architecture at the time that he became the emperor, and it was a city that in his mind lacked the grandeur that a capital city of a world-ruling empire ought to have. And he desired to rebuild the city, but the city was already built. And so in order to build the city with the grandeur that he felt that it deserved, he arranged for arsons to set different portions of the city on fire, sent by him. And by the time these fires were lit and they had run their course, over one half of the capital city of Rome was burnt to the ground. Now, Caesar Nero was, like most of the Caesars, pretty full of themselves, a lot of power. And what he underestimated was the backlash that was going to come against him by the Roman people for doing this. They knew he was responsible for the fires. And the backlash was so strong and it was so great that he actually believed it was kind of a threat to his position as emperor, so he needed a scapegoat, someone to blame this on other than himself. And when he looked through his empire, he wanted to find, he couldn't find a more uh, politically powerless, a more politically unconnected group of people in the whole Roman Empire at the time than this group called Christians. And so he blamed the arsons and the burning of the city of Rome on these uh, Christians. And Caesar Nero wasn't satisfied with simply doing that. He also then modeled the persecution against Christians. He set the tone for the persecution. Nero, we're told by historians, would take Christians, tie them to posts in his royal garden, pour pitch over them, and then light them on fire. They would literally become living human uh, torches while he would, as a maniac madman, uh, race his chariot around those same gardens naked. This is what he would do to entertain himself and model the persecution of Christians, burning them alive. He would also have Christians regularly fed to uh, wild animals in the arenas to provide uh, entertainment for the masses of Rome at that time. And then Nero had many Christians crucified. This was a deliberate mockery of Christian faith to crucify those who claimed to follow a crucified and risen Savior. He would also have Christians sewn up inside of the bloody hides of wild animals, and and as they would be sewn up inside of that, great packs of, of vicious wild dogs would then be released. They wouldn't know when they would come upon Uh, this human being sewn up inside of this. All they knew was blood and flesh. 
And so with a wild frenzy, they would then tear that hide apart. They didn't know what was dead, what was alive, until they had just completely destroyed, without any kind of thought or reservation, of course, the human being that lay inside. And in all, he murdered thousands of Christians in the city of Rome alone. And this letter was written by Peter. This gives us the context of what Christians were going through at the time. And so Peter writes this letter in order for it to be an encouragement to Christians in what they were in the middle of, also to provide them with an eternal perspective in terms of what they were facing, and then some very needed practical instruction on how to conduct themselves in the middle of all of this. Because up to this point in time, this kind of persecution uh, and this vicious of persecution was unheard of. The religious persecution by the Jews was something entirely different. And so, as we have seen, for 2,000 years, Christians have made a beeline to First Peter to receive encouragement, practical instruction, and eternal perspective in the middle of trials, whatever trials we're facing from this particular book. Now, he gives us five very specific encouragements in these few verses that we have here. Notice first in verse 12 that he tells us that we're not to think of even fiery trials in our lives as something strange. And I hope for the rest of our lives when we read Peter talking about fiery trials, we'll realize that he may have even been speaking about being lashed to a post, having pitch poured over you and lit on fire. But he tells us we're not to think of even fiery trials in our lives as something strange. Now, why in the world would the Holy Spirit find it necessary to tell us that, except that so often we do consider it to be a strange thing when great trials come into our lives? We're just like everybody else in the world until our thoughts are kind of governed by the Word of God. And there's that tendency to think that, and that if you live a good, moral, faithful Christian life, then the result will be that if you do have trials, they'll be very few in number and they certainly won't be fiery trials. That people will appreciate the kind of life that God is producing within us by His Holy Spirit. And if we bring that expectation to the Christian life, we're going to end up being surprised by the trials that do come our way for the simple reason that we are Christians. I think one of the reasons our lives can become an object of persecution and suffering is because our changed life brings conviction to the world all around us. When we're engaged in the same sins that everyone else is committing in our family or among our friends or in our workplace or at our school or in our neighborhood, well, everybody gets along because we're all then comfortable with one another because we're all living the same kind of life, the same debased kind of life, the same sinful kind of of life. But when someone then stops committing those sins, now they begin to make other people uncomfortable. 
And the reason that a life that is changed that way by God makes other people uncomfortable is because it brings a conviction to them that what they're doing is wrong. You can even say, listen, I'm not going to witness to you ever again. I'm not going to mention Jesus Christ. I'm not going to share the gospel with you ever again. And then then we can still then be surprised when they still don't want anything to do with us. Because the life alone, we take no credit for it. The quality of the life, the Christ-likeness of the life that God produces within our lives, it brings a conviction to other people. Because there is the realization. Listen, before we come to know Christ, we're not stupid. We are stupid in some ways, but we're not totally stupid. We understand one plus one equals two and two plus two equals four. We can add things up. And there's the realization in our lives that if God can change that person the way God has changed that person, then God can change my life in the same way. And the implications of it are are that if that I am now thus responsible for continuing to live the life of darkness and sin that I am living. And so people don't like that conviction. They don't like the discomfort of that. And so there can come the alienation or the outright persecution. And so this is sometimes just a part uh, of, of the deal. Jesus spoke about it to us as Christians And he said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, sometimes we just sit there and think that that's just a wonderful verse in the Bible. That's something that the Son of God should have said. And I'm glad he said it. But it's the truth. He spoke it to a group of men who were going to face exactly what he was saying, as well as us. If they persecuted me... The world is no different. Then they will also persecute you. If they've kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him, that is the Father, who sent me. And as we've mentioned a few times going through here, the world will not react to Jesus in us any differently then it reacted as a whole, both religious and secular, to Jesus 2,000 years ago. We cannot expect a different outcome related to that. Now, many Christians react to serious trials by not only thinking them strange, but also concluding that these kind of trials must mean, for instance, that God is angry with them. So the only way that God would allow this in my life or this difficulty in my life must mean that he is mad at me. He's upset with me over something. And so then we're asking the Lord, why me, Lord? What, what, have, what have I done that's wrong? How have I upset you? And that's a conclusion so often that people come to when a trial comes into our life. Sometimes people will begin to think they'll think that this trial's come into their life because there must be some secret sin in their life that God is punishing them for. And if and if the Christian doesn't think it for themselves, there's plenty of other Christians who will uh, tell them that. 
Oh, man, look what's going on in your life. Look at the difficulty of what you find yourself in the middle of. I mean, you give the appearance here of being holy and walking with God and knowing God and all, but God doesn't hammer people like that or allow them to be hammered by the enemy unless there's some kind of secret sin. You can level with me. What are you really like in secret? So there's that idea that, uh, that... that, that must be the cause of it because, after all, only good things happen to good people and only really bad things happen to really bad people. Now the logic of Job's comforters. The book of Job, which we'll get to in a few weeks, it's a great way to start the new year on Sunday nights. With comforters like this, who needs enemies? But for 30-some chapters, here his four friends come, and they come and they're talking with him and, and talking with Job. And Job is completely righteous in the eyes of the Lord. No secret sin. He's the real deal. He's got a relationship with God. And what he is in public, he is in private. This is Job. And God knew it. But these trials were so big and they were so difficult that these men, deeply religious men, Come on the scene, and for 30-some chapters, they say the same thing over and over and over again. This only happens to people who have secret sin in their life. And if you would only confess that sin, this great trial will lift off of you. And Job says to him, in essence, I have searched my life. I have asked God. I don't know of anything. If I could confess sin to bring an end to this trial, I would gladly confess confess the sin. But that was the religious thinking of the day, that this kind of trial, deep trials like this, must be secret sin behind all of it. There's nothing of the sort, but this shows how ingrained this kind of thinking is, not just in the world, but even among Christians. Jesus was walking with his disciples one day, and he passed by a man who was blind from birth, His disciples pointed him out to Jesus and said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Again, that was the religious teaching of the religious Jews in those days, that if any child was born, whether blind or uh, deaf or any other kind of handicap or anything like that, that somehow this was the product of sin whether the sin of the parents or the sin of the child in the womb before they were ever born. Now, you imagine every child that came out less than perfect out of that womb and into life, the incredible pressure that that put upon parents, the stigma, the wrong stigma, and the pressure that it put upon them, everybody looking and saying, that child either was a terrible sinner from the womb, or this child is in the condition that he or she is in because of the sins of the parents. And Jesus answered and he said, Neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God might be revealed in him. But that was the idea. 
If there's this kind of suffering, this kind of difficulty, it has to be because of sin in our lives. And even if you don't have a Job's comforter to bring that uh, accusation to you, uh, there are, usually there's a few Christians who, who will do that kind of thing or sometimes will even accuse ourselves related to that. The idea that every time something hard or bad happens in our lives, it must be the result of sin in my life or that somehow God is punishing me, it is prevalent to this day. And it's a very easy emotion to manipulate by religious leaders. And Jesus steps on the scene in human history and says, none of it's true. Don't believe it. Sometimes we can be tempted to doubt the love of God for us based upon the difficulty of the circumstance. And that's another tendency that we have. If we didn't have the Bible to redirect our thinking, to redirect our emotions, that when something, I mean, the really, the kind of the bottom falls out type of trials or difficulty or season of difficulty that we go into. And so often the automatic thing is we begin to think that God doesn't love me. And we come to conclusions about his love based upon our circumstances. If our circumstances are easy or they are favorable, then he must really love me today or this year. If they're very, very difficult, it means that he's wondering about me at the moment. The Bible takes our our focus, whether in a time of difficulty or or in in a season of, of relative ease, And tells us there's only one place, not just in the whole wide world, but only one place in all of human history that we can set our focus on unfailingly as Christians and come to the proper conclusion related to the love of God. And that is the cross of Calvary, where the very Son of God died on that cross to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. Hanging on that cross, a bloodied mess on that cross. And Paul wrote to the church at Rome and he said, But God commendeth his love, demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And there is that that realization that when we want to, uh, to realize how true, how faithful, how un moving is the love of God for me, unchanging is it, is to look to the cross of Calvary. And that's a historical fact that will never change. Our trials are never, ever a, 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 uh, an indication of the fact that God has lost the greatness of his love for us. And we are always to walk in the confidence that God will always overwhelm every season of suffering, and he will work it together for our good. That's what Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says. All things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purposes. That's talking about Christians. I wish I could read that Bible for the first time, that verse in the Bible for the first time every time I read it. Because I never, ever want to grow hard to it. I never want to lose the amazement of what it is that he's promising through that verse. That whatever he allows us to go through in this world, he will work it 
together for our good. And he does it. He's faithful to it. And there might be some of us that sit here this morning and, and you need to tell yourself that God is going to work this together for good. With that child, with that divorce, with a marriage problem, that situation, whatever it might be in life. And to look at that as a child of God and say, I refuse to believe anything less about what I'm in the middle of right now than to believe that he will work this together for my good because it's the truth. It's the truth. And sometimes we need to tell ourselves the truth. Sometimes we're in a situation where we can't wait for somebody else to know the truth, to speak the truth to us. We can't explain what's going on in our lives. We can't explain the pain. We can't explain the difficulty. How do you even begin to scratch the surface? Who can even begin to understand? And so God understands and we understand what we're in the middle of. And so sometimes God will make us our own counselor in that situation by bringing a scripture to our remembrance to speak to ourselves. You say, that seems kind of weird. No, it won't as you grow older. You'll find you talk to yourself all the time. Older you get. And you know what's wonderful about it? You won't care. To me, older people are the hippest people in the whole wide world. When you're younger, as everybody's always concerned about what everybody thinks about them while they're pretending that they're not concerned about what everybody thinks about them. You get old and you don't care what people think about you. You look at them. You walk, they walk out of the front door and they're dressed like professional bowlers. <laughs> Green and black plaid pants and they got this party coming up with a white elephant sweater. Where do you get the ugliest sweater in the whole wide world? You get it from an old person. That's where you get those sweaters because they never throw anything away. So David in the Psalms said, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He talked to himself. Nobody else could encourage him but God. God used him to encourage himself. God works all things together for good in our lives. Don't think it's strange. Suffering's not something that's foreign to Christianity. That's what we aren't to do, Peter tells us here. But then he tells us what we are to do, conversely. Instead, and he said, instead, verses 13 and 14 were to rejoice. Somebody might be tempted to think in light of the suffering that they were in the middle of what? Rejoice? Are you crazy? Who could rejoice in the middle of that kind of a trial? And then not only that, but how in the world could a person rejoice? And Peter goes on to explain himself by giving us three reasons for such trials that, and, and three reasons for why these kind of trials are a cause for joy. In verse 13, he tells us, first of all, because in these trials we partake of Christ's suffering. And that is, we suffer persecution and rejection for the same things he did. So we live the life that he lives. Think, oh, everybody's going to love Jesus. Don't. He ended up crucified. Everybody doesn't love Jesus, and everybody isn't going to love Jesus. 
Not in our neighborhood, not in our school, not in our world. It's not going to happen. Some are, but not everybody is. And so we suffer persecution and rejection for the same things that he did. And when we live the same life that he lived and we speak the same things that he spoke, as we get that persecution, then in the midst of that persecution, we come to know him better. We come to understand him in a way that we would never otherwise understand. And we come to love him for it in a way that we would never otherwise love him. And all of that is very, very priceless. It is an honor to be treated by the world the same way that it treated Jesus. It means that they see something of him in us. That's the highest compliment that you can have in life. Second, he tells us in verse 13 that we're to rejoice because when his glory is revealed, we will also be glad with exceeding joy. That is, we have the assurance that as we suffer for being faithful to Christ, our faithfulness is one day going to be rewarded by the Lord. There are parts of the world today that Christians live in, they will never be rewarded for their faithfulness to Christ, this side of glory. It's just not going to happen. It will never be appreciated what it is that they're doing. So Peter reminds these, the folks in his day and reminds us today that we have the assurance that one day as we're faithful, we will be rewarded by Jesus himself and we will hear from his lips as we look into his eyes, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And every Christian who suffers rejection and suffering and persecution for being faithful to God needs to realize that. No faithfulness will ever go unrewarded. The issue is, will it happen in this life or the life to come? You say, I, am, I have hardly been rewarded <laughs> relationally for being faithful to God in this life. Fine, then you have a fabulous reward waiting for you in the life to come. But God, he won't be any man's debtor. He will reward that faithfulness. And then the third reason for joy, he tells us in verse 14 is for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, we don't need to wait until heaven to experience God's glory and and the full blessing for faithfulness. The Holy Spirit rests upon persecuted Christians in the same way that God's glory rested upon the tabernacle at the time of Moses in the Old Testament and rested upon the temple at the time that it was dedicated by King Solomon. Two of the most beautiful pictures of celebration among God's people in the entire Old Testament where now the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, is dedicated to God by Moses and God shows up in a massive way, comes upon the the whole, not only the tabernacle, but the whole environment as a a cloud representing his presence and his glory shows up in such a measure that the priest couldn't even continue to minister and people were just wowed by the whole experience. 
Same thing that happened when Solomon dedicated the temple. Same thing. God shows up in his Shekinah glory, the greatness of his presence and his glory, and he overwhelms the entire environment. And here is Peter speaking to God's people and saying, whatever suffering we face in this world, however great a measure it might be, God will send with that suffering His Shekinah glory, His presence, the greatness of His power and who He is, He will become so strong upon that environment that it will be unmistakable. However high the world raises the level of persecution and opposition and suffering in the world, God says, I will raise the level of my presence and my glory upon that life. And he promises to do it, and he does do it. Do you think that the men and women by the millions who have died for their faith in Christ down through 2,000 years of history were any smarter or dumber than you and me or stronger or weaker than you and me? They're all just like you and me. But a season occurred in their life where here they are faced with death. And the only way they can escape it is to deny Christ. And they're tied to the pole and the wood is heaped up all around them. And we think in our minds sometimes that they're in some kind of a comic book kind of category that we could never attain to, that they would be able to hold on to the name of Christ and not deny him and be burned alive while singing his praises. But God says it's true of all of his children through any age. Whatever place we find ourselves in, he will so add his glory to our situation that we'll be able to be faithful to him in that situation. Polycarp, the early church, one of the earliest pastors of the church at Ephesus, 86 years old, religious persecution of the day, they tie him up to a stake and they begin to pile the wood all around him, give him one opportunity after another to deny Christ, and finally he puts a stop to the argument by saying, for 86 years the Lord has been faithful and good to me, shall I deny him now? They lit the fire around him and he went into heaven singing the praises of God. Fox's Book of Martyrs filled with this. Stephen in the book of Acts when he is taken in Acts chapter 7 is a classic example, and they are about to stone him to death for his testimony to Christ and all. And while he's in the middle of this whole scene, this opposition, he's going to die a martyr's death, we're told in Acts chapter 7. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This only made them even more mad. And as they began then to stone him to death, they did so as Stephen was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, kneeling down and crying out with a loud voice, Lord, do not put them to uh, charge them with this sin. And if we find ourselves, and so often we think to ourselves, if we found ourselves in a similar situation, 
would we be able to respond in the same way? And because maybe we've never needed the grace of God in that kind of a measure, the glory of God upon our life in that kind of a measure, we wonder, would we be able to stand as others have? And we would. Because however great the opposition of persecution might be or the suffering, God will make sure that his glory and his grace will be greater still. And so we don't have to wait for heaven to experience God's glory for faithfulness in this life. God pours it out in this way upon our lives. And so he says, don't lose your joy. And then he said in verse 15, he communicated to them and to us that all suffering isn't equal. Not all suffering in life is a blessing. There's some suffering in life that isn't a blessing at all. Suffering as a child of God for sinful behavior is not a blessing at all. Suffering for wrongdoing. And he lists examples of it as a murderer in verse 15, as a thief, as an evildoer. And then it just is kind of funny to me, always has been, as a busybody in other people's business. Puts it in the same league here of murder, thief, (laughs) evildoer, just meddlers. Probably as much suffering done in, in life through a meddler than even murders in human history. I'll never forget an incident that happened early in my Christian life. My wife Karen, Calvary Chapel in Napa. The wives had it, were, were brand new Christians, and the women had a, a women's retreat. They went off to some retreat center in Northern California, and it was one of those times where God just met with them in a super powerful way, undeniable. And when you're in that kind of a situation, you don't take it for granted. You know it doesn't happen just every day. So the pastor's wife looked at the situation and looked at everything that was going on, realized what they had experienced and the whole deal, and and spoke to them and said, listen, when you leave this place, because of what God has entrusted to us here and what we've experienced, when you leave this place, the devil or your enemy is going to just try and come against you and and, uh, try and ruin what it is that God has done. And so they all left, and one particular carload of women headed out, several Christians in that car. They left the retreat, and they started heading to Napa, they got pulled over by a CHP. And as they got pulled over by a CHP, this was a deacon's wife. I was a fellow deacon with him. She said to him, we're just a bunch of Christian women coming home from a women's retreat. And our pastor's wife told us that because of the glory that we had experienced at this retreat, that we shouldn't be surprised that on the way home, the devil would try and attack us. And... Take away what it is that we had just experienced. You wonder what CHP's here or any law enforcement. So there he is, the devil in a blue suit, blue uniform. Now, that, was, that wasn't being persecuted or suffering for righteousness. That was persecution suffering for wrongdoing. That's a speeding ticket for speeding. Hmm. Now, notice number four in verses seven and eight. Peter tells us there's something worse than suffering at the hands of the world for righteousness' sake, and that's one day to be judged by God for unrighteousness. And here Peter contrasts the suffering of God's people in this life 
with the suffering of the wicked in eternity. And if the choice is between suffering for righteousness as a Christian in this life or suffering for sin for eternity and the life to come, then that's an easy choice. And that's the choice everyone makes in the course of their life because that's the choice that's before every single person. And I like what Peter does there in verse 17. And he talks about those who do not obey the gospel of God. What's the single great reason behind the suffering that was being meted out upon those Christians? What's the single great reason for all wrongdoing that occurs in the world? The single great reason for all of it is that people do not yet obey the gospel of God. They are not yet Christians. They haven't trusted in the gospel yet for themselves Every other sin is a symptom sin of the single greatest sin that a person can commit. And that is to spend a lifetime rejecting the Savior and the salvation that God has sent into the world to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. It's not about sex, drugs, rock and roll, this and that. You name the sins that are going on in your life if you're not a Christian yet. It's not about that. All those sins can be readily forgiven. The one sin that can never be forgiven is to live this life, reject Christ every moment of it, and then head into a Christless eternity. There is no answer. No solution to the dilemma of that catastrophe. But that's the sin. And so often people think that the deal about becoming a Christian is that this occurs, you know, over some long period of time and that we attain to it by degrees. Give me the first list that I need to do. All right, I'll go to church and do this number of times and then I'll begin to do this and then I'll do this thing and then I'll climb the Himalayas and then I'll crawl on glass on my knees and then I'll do this and then I'll, and the the whole thing that, like, all of the and, the and the biggest one is I, I'll clean up my act and stop being a sinner so that I can become a Christian. <laughs> Have a nice wait. <laughs> the way that we become a Christian is by simply putting our faith in the Son of God. You cannot honor God more than when you do that. You cannot bless God the Father's heart more than when you do that. Jesus had a group of religious men come to him one day. And they said to him, as, as they approached him on, uh, it, it, for dialogue, they said, What shall we do that we may do the works of God? And Jesus answered and he said to them, This is the work of God. I mean, they got their pad out. They're ready to write down 200 things. What shall we do that we may do the works of God? That is to satisfy him, appease him. And Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he hath sent. Simple faith in his Son. 
And so as Christians, Peter is saying here, we're comforted with the knowledge that one day God is going to bring all this persecution and all this suffering to an end. And then I close with verse 19. What do we do in the meantime? When God does allow us to suffer as Christians according to the will of God, when he allows that kind of suffering in our lives because we do live a godly life. And Peter tells us that we're to commit our souls to him and commit to doing good even more so, knowing we're doing so unto a faithful creator. And so here is, is God, the recognition that if God allows suffering into my life, then there is a purpose for it. There is some part of his plan in human history that's being advanced because of the fact that I am in this suffering and it requires the hardship to accomplish it. I'm not surprised at all that God allows hardship in my life in one sense, that it takes hardship to get through to me. I'm, I'm thick-headed and I can be thick-hearted. And sometimes it takes a great difficult season in my life for God to entrust just a single great truth of his to me that he gives me revelation related to in that situation so that he drives it into a permanent place in my life. And now I know it for this life and the life to come. It's not easy for God to develop godly character in me. And I think that a lot of us in the same category. And sometimes it takes a great difficulty where something happens and then God, it looks like it's all this over here. This looks like what the whole situation is about. And God comes over here and he says, this is what I want you to know about me that you would never understand otherwise. Apart from this, it has nothing to do with this. This will be gone in five minutes after this is established between you and me. And then he does it and the light goes on. And we go, God, wow. That makes it worth everything that you have put me through here. It's never purposeless when he allows us to go through that kind of thing. And thus, if he does allow it in our lives, we're to continue to do good. We are not, and he has spoken about it previously in the letter, we are not to allow this kind of difficulty and opposition and persecution to ever compromise in our life to bring an end to the persecution. God brings an end his way. I don't want to hijack the situation. We are never to cease God's call upon our lives in fulfilling that call in order to please our family, in order to hold on to friendships, in order to do anything. We are to continue to do good even in the midst of the difficulty and the fires that burn around us. It's not an option. It's not on the table for consideration. We do that with the knowledge that God will never, ever give us more than we can handle and that everything really does have a good purpose, even if we can't see it for the moment. God will never fail us. 
All of these apostles, except for uh, John, they will die a martyr's death. They will be crucified upside down. They will have their heads cut off, on, 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 on. Eleven of the twelve to die a violent martyr's death. This isn't, this isn't theory to them. This isn't just philosophical thought to them. This is truth. And that's why Paul spoke in his final letter to Timothy and he declared just in the context of the suffering and all that he was in the middle of and he cried out and he said, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. God had worked that into his life in the face of death through the difficulty of what he had faced in life. And I do think we need to realize, and I close with this, that to trust God in a situation is not to do nothing. Sometimes people think, well, I'm, you, hear, you say, I'm trusting God in this situation. Trusting God, you slacker. Do something. Buy a gun. What the, get a dog. What? Trusting God. The greatest thing you and I can do in any situation is to actively put our trust in God related to that situation. It is not to do nothing. It is to do the single most powerful thing we can do about that situation because we unleash God to do the fullest thing that he wants to do in that situation and then be seen as having done it and received the glory for it. He is and he always will be faithful to us. I remember when our two daughters, they're now grown, were little ones, just both of them under five. And in the bedroom they had a bunk bed. I would walk into the room after work or whatever the situation might be, and they had a game that they liked to play, they would race up the ladder up to the top bunk and then just throw themselves at me. And so I would catch the one and then whirl them around, you know, like a plane, and then safe landing just in time to catch the next one that was coming who would then get up to the top and the whole thing would go on and on. They could do it for hours. I could only do it for minutes and then collapse even as a young man. And they would just unthinkingly throw themselves off of that top bunk, whether I was looking at them or not. You know why they did that? Because I never dropped them. They had that kind of trust because I never dropped them. God will never drop us. He will never fail us. God's entire eternal reputation for faithfulness is bound up in you personally. He will be faithful. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for these encouragements from your word. Thank you that there's a voice we can listen to. 
and trust in in the middle of the great circumstances that we face in the fallenness of this world just as a regular human being and then as one of your children on top of it. Thank you, Lord, for being able to study these things today, to have them do their work in our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. Thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit in doing so. Thank you for being our God. We give you praise for your unfailing goodness and your unfailing faithfulness. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here this morning and you are not...